Welcome to another episode of the Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine podcast. My name is Hamza Ajaz, and today our guest is Dr. Gita Penza. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Penza. Hi, Hamza. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming. So Dr. Penza is an associate professor within Brown University uh, in their emergency medicine residency. In 2015, she launched Brown EM's educational blog, which now garners over 10,000 visits each month. And she's also in charge of their Brown EM podcast series. And on top of all this, she created and serves as the host and editor for AEM Early Access, which is a collaborative podcasting project from Academic Emergency Medicine Journal and the Brown EM Residency. And Dr. Pensa is also the creator of the open access podcast series, Doctors in Litigation, The L Word, which is a novel narrative style podcast curriculum on the psychological and practical preparation required for malpractice litigation. So a very diverse set of interests that you have, Dr. Penza. Now, we'll start a little bit on the step back. Where did your interest first come out in emergency medicine uh, from the beginning? Well, in medical school, I did not know what I wanted to do. And I started every rotation thinking like, ooh, this is fun. Like, perhaps I'll be an OBGYN. Like, oh, this is cool. I kind of like general surgery. I didn't know I'd like that. And I went through my third year, I think I was getting a little more panicky about not knowing what it was I wanted to do. My older brother, who is also an emergency physician, a couple of years ahead of me, was doing his residency in EM in Detroit and was basically like, hey, little sis, why don't you think about emergency medicine? And I just hadn't really thought about it before. Uh, and I did a rotation. I was at University of Pennsylvania and they did not have an EM program but they were building one and the faculty were so enthusiastic and they were just such cool people. And I really just sort of fell in love with it my first month doing it. And then I realized like, this is it. I can do all the things that I rotated through that I loved. I'm going to get to do here. The scheduling flexibility was really appealing to me. I had already met my husband and we were thinking about family and stuff like that. And I thought that that seemed like a really great way to, to balance things. And also, I am just somebody who has a lot of interests. And I noticed that people who do emergency medicine all tend to do something else, too. And my brother is, was sort of a prime example. Like he's an emergency physician who also, he's an entrepreneur, and he also flies small planes, and he's just, just one of those things. Now, I don't fly planes or anything like that, but I do have a lot of other interests. And so that adaptability and thinking like that you can constantly be innovating what you do really appealed to me. Yeah, honestly, a lot of people that I've uh, spoken to about emergency medicine and what initially piqued their interest kind of reflect on the fact that they rotated through all the 30 year, you know, required rotations and everything kind of stood out to them where they were like, hey, I could be an OBGYN, I could be a pediatrician, I could be a surgeon. So that part, I think, ref you know, reflects very largely on a lot of people's interest within emergency medicine and what initially drew them. And you're so right when you mentioned the fact that a lot of ER doctors or emergency physicians just happen to have their little side interest or the side hustle, whatever you want to call that, particularly for yourself, you know, I've, we've alluded a little bit to your interest within digital innovation, how that, you know, portrays within the educational world, um, and as well as, you know, the topics of malpractice litigation as well. So diving a little bit more into that, into you were initially the pioneer for creating your Brown's uh, emergency medicine educational blog. How did that idea first start with yourself? To say that, I have to kind of go back to what happened when I originally graduated from residency. And so in 2000, 
one, I finished residency at GW and I had been, I had been chief resident and I had been thinking about an academic career and was very into education at that time. And then I didn't take an academic job. So circumstances being what they were, I wound up working in a pretty small community hospital that didn't have residents or students or anything academic whatsoever. And that's a long story about how I wound up there, but, but it was awesome. I loved it. It was a eight doc group. Everybody is well-trained. Half of them had been chief residents at their institutions, this lovely democratic group. And it was, it turned out to be this sort of Shangri-La of, of community emergency medicine practice. It was pretty awesome. When I started, okay, this is going to be a brief stint while my husband does fellowship. He was doing fellowship in GI at Brown. And so I, I thought I was just sort of there for three years, except I really liked it. And so then I just kept doing it. And then somewhere along the way, we can get into the litigation stuff later, I became the defendant in a, a pretty significant lawsuit. And that really changed the way I thought about medicine and my career altogether. And I was becoming fairly disillusioned with what I did. And that's a whole other long story. But in 2014, I was thinking about, I was still in it from 2006 to 2014. I was still involved in this, what turned out to be a 12-year malpractice case. But I <laughs> was looking for ways to learn to like what I did again. And there was the opportunity when my group was absorbed by a larger academic group, there was the opportunity then to come back into education. And so I thought, maybe that's a good idea for me. Maybe that's going to reinvigorate how I feel about medicine. And so I approached the residency director at Brown EM, Jessica Smith, and I said, I, I think I'd like to come back and teach, but I am a generalist. I have no niche. Like, what am I going to do? Which is, you know, it's a real barrier to being an academic. Like maybe you're supposed to like have a particular area of interest, but I didn't. And so she actually invited me to think about how to bring the whole world of FOMED into the residency. The residents have been sort of clamoring for ways to use the the whole spectrum of these great blogs and podcasts out there to actually qualify for conference credit. But they really wanted to follow the RRC's recommendations to the letter and made sure that we had like all the ducks in a row in terms of it being real true eye credits. And if we were audited, you know, would it be sound? And so I had no idea how to do any of that stuff, but I thought, okay, like what's FOMED, but okay. <laughs> so I started teaching myself. And so I learned about educational technologies. I took some classes at Brown in terms of using the learning management system. I kind of got immersed in this world of blogs and podcasts. And there were more blogs than podcasts back then, but, and really thinking about like, gosh, okay, how do we curate this content into something? And so I started off by developing a digital course for the residents where every week they would have assigned content that I curated, I vetted, and then we would go through the learning management system and they could do a little discussion, you know, group discussion, and then take a short multiple choice quiz at the end. So I did that for a while and I got very into the world of online emergency medicine education. And then the residents said like, well, you know, there are a couple of blogs out there, like maybe we could start one. And so there was one particularly interested resident whose name is Tom Ross, if you're listening to this, he's an attending now, but he and I started the blog and there was, you know, a little bit of trepidation, I think, on the part of faculty who were worried about patient protection and all very valid worries. Um, and I think that it was sort of a 
you know, they're afraid of changing the way that we did things and putting stuff out there in the universe. And basically, we just sort of said, let's just, you know, ask for forgiveness more than permission and let's just try. And so, and I think we have done a pretty good job of setting up, you know, rules of the road for our residents. And it's become something now where the residents contribute to on the regular. So instead of giving a a talk to like 10 people on whatever, you know, rotation you're on, they can use those experiences to educate anyone anywhere, which I think is overall part of the whole appeal of this. So that is my long-winded answer to how I'm starting the blog. And I had a great example of, you know, you're at Cincinnati, right? So you guys were first, I think. I mean, I don't know if you were first first, but like taming do you say taming this shrew? Is that how you pronounce it? Because it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yep, yep. it's a very catchy name and an amazing blog. And um, so that was when I saw that, I was like, there is a model out there. We don't look exactly like you or do exactly the same thing. But I have always had this sort of, you know, Bruce Lee mantra in terms of like, you know, absorbing what's useful and rejecting what's useless and then adapting it to make the rest of it your own. And so that's that's what we did. Yeah, honestly, it's it's incredible. And it kind of touches on the topic of, it kind of alluded to this earlier about your department and the institution kind of coming on board with this idea that's, you know, not trying to ruffle any feathers. And the whole topic of FOMED and getting the RRC, you know, check, you know, checklist basically. And the same idea of like, how does this incorporate well within like academic, you know, scholarship? And those topics are now being explored. And, you know, obviously there's so many good resources uh, available, you know, on your website, uh, on your blog, uh, you know, Team the True, there's so many good blogs that have produced such good quality uh, literature reviews and just access to like emergency medicine education. And now we're dealing with this kind of, you know, topic of, well, is this scholarly to what level of scholarly activity you can get? And those are, you know, things that are being explored right now will have hopefully answers in the coming, you know, years. And so in terms of what the trend becomes, but it's just an interesting topic of, what kind of started off and, you know, what is manifesting itself into as the years come along. Oh, absolutely. And I think the idea of this is scholarship, again, it's, it's turning some institutional things on their heads, I think. And so there are some people, I think, who are used to a very traditional view of scholarship. And I don't think that we need to necessarily abandon that, but I think of this more of an and. There are great studies about how social media use and doing things in digital ways and video abstracts and all those things increase the impact of your traditional scholarship. So there's a lot to learn. And I think that we're just getting started. The fact that you just mentioned right there, that little subtle point about the and aspect where you have your traditional you know, manuscript publications, abstracts, and this is just another supplement on top of that. I think the combination of the pairing of those will go a long way in terms of the impact factor or the impact and the ability to disseminate uh, the education and the literature that it is growing, you know, daily with emergency medicine. Now, also touching a little bit more about, you know, some of these earlier ideas that you guys, you, you came up with at your residency. Now, let's say there's another residency who wants to also be, you know, who's listening in, is, you know what, I've been having this idea about starting an educational blog within our own residency. So what advice would you offer to those institutions who are, or those residencies who are thinking about starting a blog uh, about emergency medicine or education? Now, what advice would you offer to those individuals? I would say first and foremost, to set your ground rules really early, because obviously there are, you know, patient protection, consent, all of those issues around images, 
make all of that very, very crystal clear before you get off the ground. And then I think the second thing is to, you know, take a survey of how things are done at other places, look at their blogs, see what would work for you. I think that people get excited about an idea when it's early and then the enthusiasm is there. And then unless you have something in place where maybe you have like a requirement or something like that for where it's, you know, not adding to people's workload, what we did was sort of substitute like, oh, you were going to do a talk for this. Like, how about do your talk, but like you can have a post about it too. And so there's a little bit of really incorporating it into the actual educational program that will help with the sustainability of it, because otherwise you're going to find like residents are busy people. So you're going to run out of people who are interested in volunteering to do an extra job. So finding ways to make it integrate into the educational process of your institution, I think is really key in thinking about it in terms of, of longevity. And then I think that it's important to really let the residents know what the benefit is of doing it, okay? So if you're thinking creatively and you're like, okay, you could do this as a multimedia post, you could do this as a procedure video, you could do this as X, Y, Z, you get two things out of that. One is I think when you're teaching and thinking about how to communicate ideas in an innovative way and creatively, you are teaching yourself very, you're mastering that topic. So there's that one thing that's sort of top of that triangle when you're thinking about like, you know, when you're really, really manipulating this information and doing like creative stuff with it, like that's when you become the master. So it's, there's the benefit of teaching everybody in the world like that. And the other thing is that I really think that people should get comfortable with digital education and technology because of what we just said before. I think that if you're even if you're planning on going and doing a traditional academic career, it would really help you if you knew how to make a little video or you knew how to how to write and structure and uh, make a visually appearing uh, appealing blog post or how to record a podcast. I think that you would be doing yourself a great service if you think of those as skills in the new academics toolkit. Yeah, I know you, you touched on this already in this conversation about the different modalities beyond just an educational blog per se that you know can supplement your traditional learning within within residency. So for residencies, you know, kind of touching more about this topic in terms of for residencies are looking for ways to supplement their traditional form of teaching, what you know, which is traditionally been grand rounds, uh, lecture-based or didactics-based discussions. You've touched on some of them, you know, educational blogs and writing an article on a post uh, on a blog is one way. What are some other ways that, you know, residencies can advocate on behalf of their residents to, for alternative modes of, for learning? You know, for example, you have like II, you have asynchronous education. What are some of these ways that residencies can incorporate some of these things so that they get educational credit on top of just your standard traditional uh, didactics for grand rounds? I think that the notion of, again, this is about integrating it into the actual curriculum. So what you can't do now is say like, okay, you know, you can read whatever you want for an, or, you know, look at whatever you want online for an hour and then check this box. That doesn't really work. And so there's lots of resources out there. Like, you know, ALEM has their, their air series. Like there is, we are getting better about coming up with things that we know are vetted, you know, and curated content that we know is very good. You could do what I did when we started, which is basically have somebody whose mission it is is to find like the cream of the crop and present that to the residents in an organized way that goes along with your 
didactic schedule. It's a lot of work. It was a lot of work for one person to sort of think about that on a weekly basis. But I did make very, very sure that all the boxes were checked and the residents were being quizzed on the material. And there had to be some interactive component. The second eye is interactive, right? So how, how do you interact with that stuff? So the rules that are in place that we have to work around, I think they're a bit restrictive, but they're, but that's what we have to work with. But the other thing, like to sort of branch off into like other educational technology things. I mean, I think now that, you know, for the last couple of years that we've been doing, you know, oh, group lectures on, oh, group lectures off. Like now we got to do video stuff and how are we going to learn when we're all far away from each other? I think that there is a role now for more than ever for looking at online resources and um, reviewing them together. And then maybe, you know, when you're doing things online anyway, like figuring out how do we keep people engaged and make it fun so that they're not, you know, multitasking, doing other things while, <laughs> while they're on their Zoom and their cameras are off. Or I think that this is, you know, with every like new hurdle that someone throws at you, it is an opportunity to think about like what would be a creative way to adapt to this in a way that maybe moves us forward in a direction that we wouldn't have thought of before, but like makes everything better. So this is a great time to, you know, survey like what kind of online, you know, games can you bring into Zoom or what, you know, what sort of using the limitations we have or the technology we have, like what else could we do? And so I, I think this has been a time where a lot of residencies are thinking about like what kind of educational technology can we be using because we had to blow everything up and start thinking about like how do we make this interesting and engaging when everybody is sitting at home and not having to be held wrapped in front of a projector but there's opportunity in that yeah honestly the pandemic i mean obviously has affected so many different aspects of our day-to-day life but the educational part of residency has been impacted so much and has required us to adapt to such a significant extent, you know, and our residencies did an incredible job of kind of figuring out the, the, all the logistical problems that go into hosting grand rounds virtually and, you know, and also the mantra behind keeping people engaged and all those different aspects is, it's so hard, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we've been just required to do just because of the nature of uh, the pandemic, unfortunately, which is just such a shame, but hopefully we can kind of get back to a a more sense of normalcy in terms of traditional face-to-face uh, didactics and, you know, uh, simulations, stuff like that on a more routine basis in the coming, I don't even have a period of time to kind of put that to you, but, you know, in the coming X, Y, and Z at this point. <laughs> you know, simulation is a really interesting thing because when I trained, we didn't have some robots, we didn't have any of that stuff. And so I think that's an amazing example of how people have looked at what the technology is available. How do we adapt that to education? What more can we do with that? Now we have fellowships in it. Like, look at all the amazing things that we can do. I think that continuing to think about what technology is out there, being aware of it, and then thinking constantly, like, how do we adapt that to the problem that we have to solve right now is the way forward without necessarily, you know, I talked about the end, without necessarily abandoning things that we do know work well, but just figuring out what's a good way to integrate all of that to make learning more efficient and really kind of fun. Because wouldn't it be nice if, like, if it were fun? So I think bringing some of that excitement and novelty into it is there's always a little room for that. Uh, Most definitely. I think there's definitely, you know, a huge role in keeping obviously your traditional uh, format in place, but then looking to supplement that 
in ways that are novel, innovative, and hopefully, you know, make a large impact on your uh, education as well. So there's definitely a role for combining both of those. Now, transitioning a little bit more for the next topic, and we kind of alluded to this uh, over a conversation already about your podcast series, you know, Doctors and Litigation, the L Word. This is not a topic that we're frequently exposed to from a curriculum perspective within residency. And unless you are going through the experience itself, which hopefully, you know, you don't have to, but the odds are you probably will have to at some point in time. What are ways that residents and future clinicians can start to prepare themselves about just learning more about this? And then obviously, you know, having to go through the experience as well. Like what are ways that we can better prepare ourselves for the future? The reason I made the podcast curriculum in the first place is because I set out to make the thing I wish I had when I started, because there are not a ton of resources out there. And that does a couple of things. One, obviously, you graduate completely unprepared for what could be happening. Actually, I mean, it does happen during residency too, but like at some point during your career, the majority of emergency physicians are sued. So one, you graduate unprepared, but two, you also graduate with this feeling that nobody was talking about it or teaching us about it. So this is something that isn't as common as I know what the numbers are, but you feel like this is something that you everybody should be holding into themselves because clearly we don't talk about this, which sort of fuels the problem of shame and isolation and all of these things that make, you know, litigation is bad, but litigation with a whole huge helping of shame on top of it is a terrible thing. And so two things have to happen, I think. One is that it would be good if in residency programs, there were people who identified themselves as people who were resources to talk and to learn about this. So that even when you're on shift and you have a question about something, like just opening that culture up where you feel like this is not you know, the scarlet letter, this is something that happens to most of us. And we should probably, it's an occupational hazard and we should probably all know how to deal with it the same way we do with everything else. And then I think we need more resources. You know, I made this podcast, which is great. I'm proud of it. I'm happy that I did it. I do really love the feedback that I get from physicians who have found it helpful. And I really think there needs to be more. There really needs to be more. I think that I have found actually that Some residencies are using it as part of their curriculum, which I think is awesome. We need to make the resources and the teaching about this much more sort of mainstream. I get that we have, you've got a lot of things to learn as a resident, but maybe there's a sweet spot between once in four years having a lawyer come in and talk about giving a deposition versus actually understanding the process and your role in it and what it does mean and does not mean to be sued and all of that. Somewhere in the risk management lectures, there has to be something about what happens after you get the envelope because it traditionally stops there, which makes you feel like, well, if I'm well-trained and I follow all these principles, I should not be getting that envelope. But that's not actually true. So we we need to do a better job. guess I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, your podcast series was incredible and opening my eyes, you know, uh, about this topic. And as an early trainee, when I was first listening to this, I was just shocked in terms of just what the process entails and just how in-depth and how polarizing that experience can be. And I know, like, you know, in this, in having gone through residency of about two and a half years so far, 
and realizing that like, you know, we hear stories within our faculty about, oh, I remember X, Y, and Z when I was sued for X, Y, and Z, and you hear like anecdotal stories, but it's, it's hard to find like a structured curriculum about this built into most residencies and talking with friends from other programs. And, you know, we have a few lectures every once in a while, you know, over our curriculum about, you know, medical malpractice and some of these cases, but something that's robust as a formalized curriculum or a longitudinal curriculum, it's, it's hard to obviously, you know, put in place from like already the other demands that we have within residency from a strong curricular perspective, but it would be beneficial for, you know, for like the real life aspect of practicing emergency medicine in the future beyond just the clinical aspects. I don't have any solution for this, but I just want to sound the alarm that, you know, there is uh, a opportunity here for developing a structured curriculum within residencies for this topic of malpractice litigation, because it's something that, you know, the statistics show that a lot of people are going to face, but it's one of those things that we just definitely need to do a better job at in terms of teaching our residents and trainees so that they're better prepared uh, when they join the workforce. I actually think it's unfair. I think that, you know, each generations of physicians that have neglected to tell us about this. I like, I have a real beef with all of them because <laughs> so, like, I was really mad that nobody, you know, when I figured it out, which took a long time, but like, I was really angry that like nobody had prepared me for this. Cause I felt like I was super well-prepared in a lot of ways, but this became such a huge part of my life and my career and in ways that it didn't have to be. And I, the analogy I use is like, imagine if you signed up to do residency, but you had no idea about like, the hours it would take or the workload entail. It just seemed like, a, okay, like I'm starting residency. Imagine if you got into it and then you were like, wait, I have to work. What? I have to do this. I have to what? Like if you stage after stage after stage were like, I had no idea it was going to be like this. I had no idea it was going to be like this. Like that seems horribly unfair. When you know what's coming, I mean, you're not going to be thrilled about being in it, but you at least have the opportunity to mentally prepare yourself and say like, okay, I know what this is. I know it's going to end. I know how to handle it. And I'm going to just do what I need to do. Once we get doctors to that stage, I think that there will be like a huge culture change in terms of what it means to us to be sued. And it does not have to become the career defining, career ending, life changing event that it is for so many people. And so that's the podcast is sort of the very beginning of what I'm hoping becomes more of a movement. Yeah, I mean, for the listeners who have not yet, you know, listened to this podcast, I would definitely recommend you guys checking out the Doctors in Litigation uh, podcast, The L Word. It's a very useful, I would say, podcast in terms of, you know, gaining more knowledge about what the, the process entails. And some of the stories that were shared on that, you know, podcast are just incredible and learning about the emotional impact that it has on you know, the person going through this. You know, I can't even begin to imagine what you experienced over such a long period of time. So, you know, kudos to you for putting that together. So I really, we all really appreciate you, you know, doing that. Thank you. And thanks for listening to it. And I hope that if it, you know, hopefully it won't, but if it ever happens to you, hopefully you will be prepared. I've, I've heard so many times, you know, from, from faculty that as long as you're sincere, you're nice, you try to show that you're caring, that these things won't happen. But then it's one of those things that, you know, it's nice to live in that circumstance, but I, I've heard stories where even though you are all those things, it still ends up happening, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think that that's a really, 
significant misconception. As long as you are operating in a world of risk, which you are, the whole risk management thing as far as, I mean, there are things that reduce risk. That is absolutely true. But the whole thing that risk can be managed, I think is sort of funny. Like, so, you know, risk management to me, even the term is a little off. But that being said, when you work in an arena where there is a great deal of uncertainty and there are always going to be bad outcomes, you are not immune from this. Very true. Very true. Yes. It's one of those things that it's part of the job to some extent. (laughs) It is. I think that we really have to sort of acknowledge it as such and also acknowledge that there is a whole other set of tools that you have to bring to litigation that you can't keep your doctor hat on. I mean, you have to obviously bring the knowledge that you have, but then you have to learn how to play by a whole other set of rules that we are not used to. Yeah, most definitely. I think that just about is uh, the timing for our uh, podcast today. It's a lot of obviously great topics we've been able to discuss. So Dr. Pensa, thank you so much for you know, volunteering your time to be on our podcast today. We really all appreciate it. And for everyone who's listening out there today, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all that you do. I hope you have a good one. You all take care. Thanks, Hamza. 